Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, I got ahead of myself a little bit last week, thinking the last day of January was today, Friday. As if January hasn't flown by fast enough. Sorry if you were champing at the bit to get writing over the weekend, but you'll just have to wait a couple more days. Our flash fiction contest goes live this Monday, February 1st. We'll be posting on our website and all of our social media channels, so keep your eyes peeled for it. I've got just one thing before we head out this week, but it's a good one. I'm happy to announce that our good friend and longtime narrator, Brian Rollins, is now officially part of the Tales to Terrify staff. If you'll recall, Brian stepped in during the summer to help us with reading submissions and he's been gradually working his way into more things since then. Welcome, Brian. We're so glad to have you. We're going to dive right in to our travels this week as we continue through the majestic frozen wilderness of Canada's north. This week finds us in the Northwest Territories, in a region steeped in folklore and legend, a place whose untouched beauty is shadowed by its history of death and reputation as a hotbed for the mythical and supernatural. Nahani National Park, as one writer puts it, seems more akin to Mordor than Canada. The mix of brutal, steep, jagged peaks, of cold, unforgiving rock and snow, separated by rolling, peaceful, verdant meadows, speckled with bright wildflowers, and lush forest. It creates a strange, although breathtaking, juxtaposition. Despite their majesty, many of the region's sites seem to have darkness etched into their very identities. Places like Dead Men Valley, Headless Creek, Funeral Range, Hell's Gate Rapids, and the Valley of the Headless Men give you a sense of the dangers a visitor might face. 
and they're not just arbitrary names someone picked because they sounded cool. No, they're names that have been earned. Men vanish in that country, and down the river they say it's a damned good country to keep clear of. That was the ominous warning given to British explorer Raymond Patterson as he left Fort Smith on his way to explore the Nahani region. If only someone had told that to Frank and Willie McLeod a few years earlier. The brothers from Edmonton, Alberta, made the trek into the Nahani Range for the same reason so many have headed north, especially in our stories over the last few weeks. Yes, they were in search of their fortune. They'd heard there was gold. And their first foray proved, surprisingly, to be pretty successful. With limited knowledge and only primitive gear, the pair worked their way north by train, then by boat, by dog sled, and eventually by foot. They struggled through the snow and frozen forest until they arrived at Gold Creek. There they set up camp and began the search for that elusive golden gleam. And as luck would have it, by the time the year was out, they'd acquired a decent collection of nuggets to take home, enough to set themselves up decently comfortably. But it wasn't long after getting home that the lure of the hunt drew them back to the Nahani Range. This time, though, the tide of fortune was not in their favor. For months, Frank and Willie were gone. They were last seen heading into the wilderness of the Nahani Park, and no one had encountered them since. Months eventually turned into years, and it became quite apparent they weren't coming back. A third brother, Charlie McLeod, grasped what leads he could and eventually organized a search party into the park. He was determined to find out what had happened to his brothers. It was a vast, dense area to try to comb, but based on the brothers' previous trip, the search party had at least some idea of where to search. The camp, they found, had been set up on the river's edge, just as the river meandered down into the heart of a wide valley. It was the flapping, torn canvas of the tent that first gave it away. They could see the unnatural flutter of fabric through the trees, hear the ripple and snap as it flew in the breeze like a weather-beaten flag. Despite years at the mercy of the seasons, the camp was surprisingly intact. A rocky ring of stones with a rusted kettle at its center was where they'd cooked their meals, and a small pile of split firewood still leaned against a nearby stump. The blankets and bedrolls, while threadbare and mossy, still lay where they fell too. And in the middle of it all, two skeletal bodies. Any number of things could have killed the two McLeod brothers, but what really struck the search party wasn't what they found, it was what they didn't. What had happened to the men's heads? Both skeletons were whole, complete down to the finger bones, except for the skulls. There were none to be found, anywhere, and they searched. The bodies seemed to lie in suspicious positions, too. One of them lay face down, arm outstretched toward a now rusted rifle, while the other seemed to have fallen from its bed, the blanket still draped partially across its back. Clearly there was foul play, but in the depths of the wilderness, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. The two, however, weren't the last corpses to be found headless in the valley although they did give Dead Men Valley its name, as well as Headless Creek, where the camp was found. Yukon prospector Martin Jorgensen had also moved to the area, and 
like the brothers, initially had great success. But also like the MacLeods, not long after sending word home that he'd struck it rich, his decapitated body was found lying outside of his cabin, which had been reduced to a charred heap of blackened logs. Numerous other similar cases were reported by the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, around that time, too. Deaths in the deep and dangerous wilderness are, unfortunately, not that uncommon. And, of course, any time riches are at stake, there's always the threat that someone may want to seize them for themselves, and there's a good chance that would involve violence. But what was so strange about all of these cases was that the men weren't just decapitated. Their heads had been cleanly removed and taken. Which left some to speculate, was someone collecting heads? Some kind of crazed wilderness headhunter? Or was there something still more sinister at play? And if that wasn't weird enough, while all of this was happening on the ground, the sky above the mountains apparently wasn't much safer. A series of plane crashes throughout the range earned it a new name, too. The Funeral Range. And later, the area also became known as a hotbed of UFO sightings. Strange unexplained lights were often reported moving in unnatural patterns through the night sky. Strange as all of these occurrences might be, I can't imagine they were much of a surprise to the local First Nations. The Nahani Range had long been known as a place of supernatural mystery. Tales of tropical gardens hidden deep within the folds of the mountains. Dangerous, mythical creatures that stalked the valleys. And spirits hiding in the hot springs and tough mounds. The ancient Decho people told tales of giants that lived in the valley and would cook their meat by boiling it in the hot springs. And given the sheer scale of the place, it wouldn't be a big surprise to find out giants could exist, even hide, in that area. There's certainly no lack of dangers that a trip to Nahani National Park can offer. But it seems the real trick if you want to make it out alive, keep a good head on your shoulders. Our first story for the evening comes from Jackie B. Born and raised in Russia, Jackie B. lives in Israel with her husband and two children. Her fiction has appeared in Weird Book, Phobos, Sanitarium, Kazine, New Myths, and Literary Hatchet, among other publications. She can be found on Facebook. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Jackie B.'s Mistakes, a Tales to Terrify original. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody but me, that is. Hannah, have you started the update? Already finished. I look up at Mrs. Connolly's face looming above my cubicle wall, her thick glasses reflecting the light. Just writing an email to let everyone know. Oh, she raises an eyebrow. I wanted to say we should create a backup before running it, but I guess it's okay if we didn't. I did. Who runs a massive database update without a backup? Kind of offensive. She even thinks I need to be told that. Thinking of everything, huh? Good job. She gives me a thumbs up and moves away. I shake my head and get back to the email. Almost a year since she hired me, but she's still surprised by how I always get things right. But that's just how I am. 
never turning to those lame excuses like nobody's perfect or you can't get everything right all the time. Those are safety blankets for the weak and the stupid. I'm neither. Avoiding mistakes is only a matter of priorities. I finish the email and read it twice, combing it for typos. After pressing send, I open it from the sent items folder and reread it one more time. If a mistake managed to sneak in, I could still recall it before anyone sees it. If nobody sees a mistake, it's like it never happened. Logging in to check the results, Mrs. Connolly shouts from her room. Sure, a bit micromanaging, but whatever. I'm used to it. Daddy was always checking on me too. My homework, my clothes, my room. Everything had to be clean and orderly. Everything always was, except for that one time when I spilled some grape juice on my papers. Too bad he saw it before I could clean it up. Hannah, could you come here for a second? I get up and walk to her room. Sitting at her desk, she turns her computer screen to me. As usual, her fingers are heavy with rings. The one on her index finger is the prettiest. The chrysoprase. I make a mental note to get myself one for my birthday. Looks like you didn't update the timestamp, she says. I almost snort. Will she ever learn to trust me? Although she's still better than my previous boss, Jerry. He was literally obsessed with finding something I'm not perfect in, always joking about how I needed to loosen up and let go. Good thing I don't have to work with Jerry anymore. Of course I did. I lean forward and point at the screen. There, the start date, the end date, the... I, I trail off and my heart skips a beat. The date fields contain the updated values, but the, the timestamp is old. My throat tightens. How is this possible? I've checked it. Perhaps you deleted a line in your SQL by mistake? Mrs. Connolly suggests. I stare at her. By mistake? It's okay, just run another update. She looks at my hands and I realize I'm gripping the edge of the desk so tightly my knuckles are white. I force my fingers to unclench. Are you okay? She gives me a worried look above her glasses. Gosh, don't take it so hard. Mistakes happen, Hannah. You're stupid, Hannah. That's what she's really saying. You're stupid, and now we have proof. No, I'm not. I'm better than that. I return to my place. My fingers fly over the keyboard, but my mind is elsewhere. I've made a mistake. She knows. She's probably calling someone right now, her friends from another department, and tells them, you know, Hannah's not perfect. She's made a mistake, and she's freaked out over it, too. Maybe she's no better than us. Maybe she's crazy. Her room is quiet, except for the occasional clicking of a keyboard. She's not telling anyone yet, but she will tomorrow. And even if she doesn't, she'll still know. Hey, I look up. Mrs. Connolly smiles at me over the cubicle wall. I'm leaving now, so you just finish that update. And don't take it to heart, okay? I nod mechanically, and she leaves. I count to ten and get up. She took the elevator, so I use the staircase to get to the ground floor. A dirty metallic door opens to the backyard of our office building. The poorly lit space is filled with boxes and trash bins. No people in sight, and no wonder most employees are already home with their families. I live alone, and Mrs. Connolly's children are all grown up, so the two of us often work late. As her car rolls out of the parking lot, I step in front of it. She hits the brakes, and her eyes widen with fear, but then she recognizes me. What happened? She rolls her window down. Nothing, I say, circling the front of the car, getting closer to her. My fingers tighten around the scissors in my pocket. I always keep my scissors sharp. Later, I wash my hands in the restroom. My sleeves are stained, but I'll take care of it at home. 
I'll also need a new home and a new job. I slip my hand into my pocket and play mindlessly with the small object that's replaced the scissors. The chrysoprase ring. I'll put it in my treasure box, the one with Jerry's keychain and Daddy's glasses and a dozen more objects, each of them a reminder of how I almost made a mistake. But when nobody knows about a mistake, it means it never happened. Avoiding mistakes is only a matter of priorities. That was Jackie B.'s Mistakes, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her 6-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at Shell Davis 72. Thank you, Michelle. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story tonight comes from Todd Kiesling. Todd Kiesling is a writer and designer of The Horrific and Strange. He is the author of several books, including Devil's Creek, Scanlines, and The Final Reconciliation, among other shorter works. He lives somewhere in the wilds of Pennsylvania with his family, where he is at work on his next novel. Listen with me, children of the night, to Todd Kiesling's 245 to New Zebico first published in Horror for Races by Nightscape Press, 2019. My old boss, Mr. Drake, once told me the universe is chaos you can count on. We're all slaves to entropy, everything rots, and even reality runs threadbare in places. I laughed at his bleak wisdom, wrote it off as the ravings of an old man too far past retirement age. That's the thing about working night shift security, even in a place like the bus terminal downtown. Work it too long and the mind starts to wither. The job is rife with a kind of mundane eeriness, 
where you're trained to be on constant guard for anything suspicious. Baggage left unattended, reports of pickpockets or con artists, vagrants loitering in the lobby. You get the idea. You make your rounds from 9pm to 9am, five days a week. Your senses on high alert for something, anything to happen. And if you do the job long enough, you grow to yearn for that something. After Mr. Drake retired, I was promoted to take his place as a supervisor of none. Financial setbacks and a decline in late-night travel meant I would be the only night-shift security guard on staff. One guy against the perilous unknowns of the city bus terminal, alone with the occasional traveler, a lone ticketing agent, maybe a vagrant or two, a guy alone with little more than his thoughts in the twilight hours. Most nights the imagination runs wild from a lack of stimulation, filling in the gaps with mirages. It's sort of like how the synapses fire one final time as the brain dies, illuminating one's consciousness with a fleeting euphoria until entropy takes hold and all those pretty lights dissolve into nothing. You spend all your free time wishing for something to happen, and all your occupied time dreading it. And sometimes, maybe once in a blue moon, you just get lucky in the worst possible way. I did about eight months ago, and I don't know if I'll ever get over it. I thought I'd seen everything while working this job over the last few years. Junkies, prostitutes, attempted murders, and suicides. But Mr. Doe proved me wrong. I call him Mr. Doe because I never asked for his name, and he never offered. Not until his departure, anyway. He walked into the terminal wearing a three-piece suit and tie, loafers that probably cost more than iron in a month, and a gray fedora with a red feather tucked into the band. My first impression of him was that he didn't belong here. Not just in the terminal, but here, in this time and place. He was an older man who carried himself with a sort of elegant confidence that's uncommon today, like a modern-day James Mason. You know what I mean. The sort of sophistication that died 60 or 70 years ago. The sort you'd only see in movies from the era. Excuse me, officer. He offered a timid smile and produced a silver watch from his pocket. Do you have the time? He twisted the dial on the side, adjusting the minutes and hours in anticipation of my answer. I looked at him, puzzled by his appearance and his question. There were clocks everywhere. Over the ticketing booth, over the entrance on the giant screen of departures, but he held me in his gaze like an expectant schoolteacher. Uh, yes, sir. I looked at my watch. 12.53. He set the time and frowned. I'm early. Do the clocks change tonight? I believe so. A brief pause fell between us as he fidgeted with his watch, and I noted the way he touched his cheekbones, pulling the skin tight against his skull. Sir, are you all right? Right as rain. He tucked his watch back into his pocket, took a seat at a nearby bench, and then, as an afterthought, You don't mind if I wait here, do you? Not at all. What time's your departure? When the clocks change. He placed his hat on the bench beside him. Fluorescent lights illuminated his balding pate, detailing the folds in his flesh, small rolls like ripples across the back of his head. I watched as he ran his fingers along his temples, heard the sharp squelching of something wet beneath the surface, and a sickening thought crept into my mind. He's wearing a mask. Doe caught me staring, and I looked away in a hurry, busying myself with the loose change in my pocket. My mind filled the silence between us, struggling to reconcile the bizarre scene I'd just witnessed. I pointed myself toward the vending machines, made a concentrated effort to walk as nonchalant as possible, and with every step I felt the stranger's eyes on my back, watching. Mr. Drake's voice chimed in my head, a memory from my first day on the job. You'll see all sorts of weird shit on the graveyard shift, kid. Hell, I've seen my share of things that I still can't make sense of, but you know what? They don't pay me this modest wage to make sense of anything, so keep your head down and do your time, understand? Ten minutes later, I'd retired to my post in the security office, watching the stack of grayscale monitors while I munched on a pack of crackers. A few folks came and went, 
racing through the terminal to meet their bus before its departure at 1.15. Mr. Doe remained on the bench, flipping through a magazine. No one noticed him, or at least not that I could tell from the grainy screens. I thought about the strange look of his skin. I thought about what he'd said. No matter which side you fell on daylight savings time, the change of an hour was always disruptive. People missed their departures or connections all the time, even in the days following the biannual changeover. That this stranger would arrive so early wasn't a surprise to me. Rather, it was his proclamation of his departure time. The odd texture of skin on his face and head had distracted me, but as I sat there on my break, I had time to think on our interaction. When the clocks change. Daylight savings time began at 2 a.m. that morning, and the clocks were programmed to switch forward an hour automatically. I checked the bus schedule for my shift, and sure enough, there was no bus due to depart or arrive at that time. In fact, the next arrival wasn't due until three hours later, at six that morning. So what bus was he talking about? Maybe he'd made a mistake. I mean, of course he'd made a mistake. His days were mixed up. Had to be. And the texture of his skin? A medical issue. Poor guy was probably dehydrated or something. Fascinating the way we struggle to rationalize the things we can't understand. I finished my crackers and left the security room intent on helping Mr. Doe realize his error. He looked up from his magazine and smiled. Evening, officer. Care to join me? Sure. He moved his hat, and I took a seat beside him. Quiet night tonight, huh? Nights like this usually are. Nights like this? Daylight savings time. The changeover always mixes things up, so corporate plans their routes accordingly. I waited a beat, hoping he'd catch my drift, but the guy only nodded. I cleared my throat. That's why I came over, to make sure you're on the right schedule. See, Mr. Doe closed his magazine. You're concerned that I have my days mixed up, that I'm going to wait here all night for no reason. Is that correct? Yes, that's it. A mixture of relief and embarrassment washed over me. Had he mistaken my concern for condescension? I opened my mouth to clarify, but he stopped me. A noble gesture, son, truly. But I assure you I am here on the right evening. He reached for his pocket watch, flipped open the metal clamshell. The design was intricate, the surface polished to an immaculate sheen. Tonight, when the clocks move forward from two to three, my bus will arrive and take me where I want to go. He held out the watch, revealing a clock face like any other save for one stark detail. A fourth hand, colored red and positioned on two o'clock. While the other hands moved, counting off the hours, minutes, and seconds, this strange fourth hand remained steady. A beauty, isn't it? I had it custom-made by a horologist in Nuzebico, accurate down to the precise second when time shifts forward and back twice in a global revolution. A difficult construct, to be certain. It will only work where such differences are present, and only at those precise moments of change. Confused, I did the only thing I could think of, and that was to smile and nod. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I follow. I gestured to the watch. It's a beautiful piece, but I don't think I've ever seen one like it with a red hand. It marks the hour of demarcation between then and now. He offered the pocket watch to me. I held it in my palm, felt its weight. The silver surface was warm. To you, there's a loss or gain of time. An hour here, an hour there. But really, it's all about the time in between. It's when the routes open to the secret highways, toward our secret places, our cities. I stared at him, gauging his face, trying to figure out if he was pulling my leg or not. He met me with the same smile, the same glint in his eye, and the same loose constitution of flesh across his skull. Thin ridges of skin circled his eye sockets, wrinkles bunched at the base of his neck all the way up to his ear. I knew then what I'd suspected the moment he walked into the terminal. Something was off about this man. Something unwell. Unnatural. If I forced him to surrender his clothes, would I find a zipper down his back? You don't believe me. Oh, well, I can't say I've ever heard anything quite like what you're talking about. 
secret highways to secret cities? A watch to measure daylight savings? I measured my words, wishing for an exit to this conversation, hoping I could pry myself free of this awkward situation. Mister, that's gotta be one of the craziest things I've ever heard. If I didn't know any better, I'd say one of the day shift folks put you up to this. Come on, level with me. Was it Reggie? Diana? Mr. Doe smiled, closed the watch with a snap. I understand your doubt, officer. Really, I do. I was like you, full of doubt. In fact, I was in your shoes once. And what shoes are those, sir? The shoes of a man standing in place, awaiting the eventual heat death of the universe. What else is there to look forward to? I'm not sure I understand, sir, and I'm not sure I want to. I... He clamped his hand over my wrist. I swear his skin was like a lukewarm ice pack. Soft, jelly-like, tepid. Loose. Come with me tonight, officer. Travel the highways with me. In New Zebico, you can be anyone you wish. Anyone at all. Let go of me, sir. Mr. Doe did as I asked, and although I made an earnest effort not to show it, I was scared as hell. The feel of his hand on my wrist made my skin crawl. Even now, I still feel his touch. The texture of a wet glove peeled away to freeze in the cold, and I can't keep warm. My apologies, officer. I am passionate about pulling away the layers which mask our true selves. New Zebico gave me the freedom to do that, and it can give it to you, too. I rubbed absently at my wrist. I should be on my way. I have rounds to make. By all means. He smiled and opened the magazine. I shall be here until 2.45 New Zebico time. That's 3.45 for you, sir. Until then, feel free to ask me anything you like. I'm an open book. Making my rounds was just an excuse. I didn't have to make them again for at least an hour. I usually spent that time of night in the security office, playing a stupid game on my phone while keeping an eye on the security monitors. Not that night, though. I sat in a perplexed stupor, rolling our conversation around in my head, while the minutes ticked by and the strange man kept his place on the bench. I'd engaged him in conversation for what reason, exactly? To make sure he had the right departure date? Perhaps his appearance? The texture of his skin, his manner of dress, the time of his arrival, the cadence of his speech. Any one of those details was enough to raise a dozen questions. But why? Why him? And why tonight? Mr. Drake's edict ran through my head on repeat. Keep your head down. Do your time. I'd managed to do just that until tonight. People mixed up their dates all the time. And I've made it a point to keep out of their drama disappear into the background, and step in only when a situation called for my involvement. This stranger, however, was an island within an island, a unique inhabitant of an already strange space. Sitting there, staring at the grainy figure on the screen, I fell into a mental rabbit hole of possibilities. I thought about what he'd said, all that babble about time and daylight savings time. Was he crazy? Suffering from early-onset dementia? Had he not been so well-dressed, I would have considered him another transient who'd fallen through the cracks of society. Terminals like this one, bus, train, even airlines, were always a point of confluence for humanity. Big elbow joints through which all manner of people passed, and it's only natural some of them get stuck in the curve. I wanted so badly to write off Mr. Doe as one of them, dismiss his ramblings, and move on with my shift but a tickle at the back of my brain wanted to know more. New Zebico. I searched the town on my phone. No results for that specific name, but several hits came back about a story published in 1926, The Night Wire by H.F. Arnold, an account of a night manager's terror as news rolls in over the wire about the destruction of a city known as Zebico. I had time to kill, so I read the story and came away with even more questions than answers. Zebico didn't exist, and based on my repeated internet searches, neither did its sister city, New Zebico. Oddly enough, neither did its author. Arnold was an enigma, with only a handful of stories to his, her, name, 
and many speculated on whether the author used a pseudonym. Zebico was a non-existent town, destroyed in a cataclysmic event, documented by a possibly non-existent author who fell into obscurity and promptly vanished from the face of the earth. And now, here in this terminal... I pocketed my phone and shook off the ridiculous mystery I was building in my imagination. My interaction with a stranger had rattled me, and reading a pulp horror story had only worsened my nerves. I needed a break. A drink. Maybe a vacation. Joining Mr. Doe on his fantastic voyage to a non-existent town in a non-existent hour seemed all too enticing in that moment. And I briefly considered rejoining him on the bench, watching the minutes tick down to departure. And there, I think, is where I discovered the root of my fascination. The stranger's arrival in the terminal was the first interesting incident I'd experienced in months. Hell, maybe years. He was right. Had me pegged from the moment we first spoke. I'm just a guy standing in place with nothing more to look forward to other than each night in this terminal. Moment by moment, night after night, I'm withering here, waiting for the heat death of the universe, just like Mr. Doe said. Waiting for the years to fall like dominoes until it's my turn to retire, just like Mr. Drake. And then, what's left? Entropy, friend. Pure entropy. The epiphany left me elated, and I considered venturing out to the terminal to thank the man for brightening my otherwise dismal life. But when I looked at the security monitors, he was gone from the bench. The vending machines were unoccupied, as were the drinking fountains on the opposite side. Mr. Doe had vanished. I checked the clock and saw the time had indeed moved forward an hour for daylight savings time. Maybe his bus arrived just as he said it would. Or maybe he decided to give up on his charade and call it a night. Either way, I found myself relieved he was gone, saddened he was gone. A mixture of anxiety and loneliness seeped into my head and heart, like a child afraid of losing an abusive parent. I felt foolish for allowing myself to become so invested in the ramblings of a madman, the fabricated mystery of his destination, the possibilities tethered to my discovery of Zebico's fictional origins. I forced myself to leave the security office and begin my rounds. The rest of the terminal was quiet, save for the hum of air ventilation and lights overhead. I'd been around that station hundreds, hell, maybe thousands of times, and that night was the first time I'd ever felt truly alone. The wide open space, the echo of my footsteps, the lack of any human presence save my own, all congealed into an unsettling sensation of solitude, as though the station were on the surface of the moon. My thoughts returned to Mr. Doe's pocket watch. It's all about the time between. I stopped in front of the entrance, peered outside at the city and the muted darkness beyond, the haze of light pollution and purple glow above. Where were those secret highways and secret cities? The streets were empty, the city asleep and still. You're just in time, officer. Doe's voice gave me a start. I spun on my heels, ready to give him an earful. What I saw locked the words in my throat. He stood beyond the threshold, near the top of the escalators leading down to the bus gates. A dark stain marred the front of his shirt and across the collar of his sport coat. His tie hung from his collar like a dead snake, the Windsor knot pulled loose and framing a clear incision on his neckline just above. I say incision because that's what it looked like. Doe had either slashed his own throat, or someone had done it for him. Silly to think that now, but he was covered in so much blood, and my mind could only rationalize with logic. I'd not yet grasped what it meant to be in between the hours. New Zebico time, I call it. His skin, that wrinkled, loose skin, stopped at the incision line. The rest of his neck, face, and skull were coated in bloody tissue, the muscles and viscera wet and shiny and shimmering beneath the station's industrial lighting. The fedora crowned his gory head, tipped to one side in an almost comical pose. Mr. Doe smiled. Don't be alarmed. I know this may be somewhat unpleasant. He held out a wrinkled sheet of flesh. The messy folds of his face mask stared back, eyeless, the mouth distorted in a sagging frown. I wanted you to see. 
tried to speak, but the words wouldn't come. There was so much I wanted to say, to ask. Was he in pain? Why did he do this to himself? I had to look away. Staring at him twisted my gut into knots. Where I'm going, you can be anyone. Reinvent yourself. I've been so many others, and they've been me. We all meet in New Zebico, our refuge after the cataclysm. And tonight I'm going home for the final time. Uh, tonight I shed this skin for good. I managed one word, the only word that mattered. Why? Follow me. The world around us rippled and swam, the air like liquid we could breathe, and I watched him descend the escalator. I did as he asked and followed him down. A bus slowly crept into view. It was parked at the nearest gate. No markings, no company logo. A purple and gray paint job with a tinted windshield. An LED screen above the windshield read, New Zebico. Mr. Doe met me at the bottom of the escalator. Last chance, officer. You can come with us, start over, be someone else. You can leave everything you are behind. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tempted. Who wouldn't be? A chance at starting fresh? The freedom to shape yourself however you wish? These are the dreams of so many, and this strange man was offering them to me at no charge. But I was afraid. God, I was afraid. I resent myself for that fear, for not finding the words when I needed them most. Scared and confused, I slowly shook my head at his offer. He smiled and pulled something from his pocket. In case you change your mind, son. Go on, take it. He placed the pocket watch in my hand, along with a plain white business card. The card's edges were stained crimson, the backside marred with a bloody thumbprint. I flipped it over. H.F.A., it read. New Zebico, Otherland Province. Below, a phone number containing twelve digits. I stood there and watched him board the bus, watched it drive out of the terminal, turn a corner, and vanish into the city night. When my shift was over, I went home to my tiny apartment and stared at the unopened boxes, the bare walls, the remnants of a life in flux. I thought about Mr. Drake and all the years he spent working security at the terminal. I wondered if he was my future, if I'd let myself become that jaded and cynical. A dried-up husk of a man, hardened by the world and compressed by the gravity of age, working thirty thankless years to earn a solid ten before entropy took hold. I had to ask myself, is this what you want? Does anyone? I didn't know the answer to that question, and it's taken me eight months to figure it out. Gave my notice once I finally found the answer. That's why they hired you, why I've been training you to replace me. Tonight's my last night on the job, and I thought you should know what's going to happen when the clocks roll backward at 2 a.m. this morning. It's why I want you to have this pocket watch, in case you reach the same conclusion I did. Pay attention to the red hand. That's to mark the hour of demarcation. That's when my bus will arrive. It's like I told you, as Mr. Drake once told me, we're all slaves to entropy, everything rots, and even reality runs threadbare in places. I think I agree with the last part. That was Todd Kiesling's 245 to New Zebico, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn Podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, 
and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters over on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our twisted faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can also share your love of the show by wearing some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we travel to dark places with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.